actors to places. Thank you, places. It's time to exit stage death. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick. And I'm your co-host, Emily Martinez. And these are the chilling true stories behind your favorite Broadway shows. Em, welcome back. It's good to see you as always. It's so good to see you as always. How are you doing? You just had a birthday. I did. 33 laps around the sun, baby. Honestly, I can tell you, everybody says that your 30s are your time where you learn to start to thrive and be yourself. But like, it's legitimately true that like... Life gets better in your 30s, though, you know, the last couple of years have been a little weird. So it's not always the truth. But like, I've generally enjoyed my 30s. So I hope you're going to enjoy yours. Yeah, as I'm, well. I'm digging them so far. Um, you know, the f- m- most of my 30s have been in a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this year I thought I was telling you a little earlier, I thought I was going to be completely alone on my birthday. So if anything, I like scheduled a hair appointment and I was like well maybe I'll get my nails done or a massage but then my lovely husband surprised me uh I was shooketh it is all on my Instagram but um yes it was it turned out to be a very lovely birthday and um just full of chilling on the couch and hanging out and eating far too much food I do say that as I'm staring at my Starlight Express mug from across the room, but notwithstanding. Uh, that's kind of how I say that I know today's musical, and that's today's case. Uh, while it has gained some major traction and built a major fan base since its opening and its closing soon after, I still think it's quite a deep cut for a lot of people. I mean, when we did it at my undergrad, people were like, oh, I don't really like Golden Age musicals. And we're like, well, it's not a golden age musical. And they went, oh, and so everybody thinks it's State Far, State State Fair or Easter Parade. Uh, so today we are talking about the musical Parade and the inspiration for the musical, which is the tragic murders of Mary Fagan and Leo Frank. You don't know this man. Ah, honestly. You don't know I, a thing. Oh, I, chills. I, I listened to this this entire this this is one of those shows where I will put it on in the beginning, and two and a half light hours later, I'm crying to the Old Red Hills of Home reprise at the end of the show because it is it's so good. It's just it's so good, and rarely do we get like two really great cast recordings mm. of the same show that are so different. Uh, which I will bring up why in a little while, but um, oh, I'm excited. I don't know my I've only know bits and bobs about this show um so i'm excited to like learn more about it and to hear your interpretations especially since you love it so much that that's always when musicals like have so much more meaning when you learn about them yeah. and you're learning from someone who just adores it well and it's so interesting because i think they tell a really amazing and accurate version of the story in the musical and it is dramatized and everywhere you read about parade they're like it is the dramatized version of but when we're looking at the the basic story they're telling, they tell that story and then some, which I appreciate. Um, Also because most people leave out Leo's wife, Lucille from a lot of the story. And she is a huge driving force into the second half of 
kind of the story, the act two of the musical. That and so I, <laughs> of course it is. Yeah. Um, so the original production ran at the Vivian Beaumont theater at Lincoln center from December of 1998 to February of 1999. It only had 39 previews and 84 regular performances. The show was conceived by book writer, Alfred Urey and director Harold Prince. Now Harold Prince is a, Mm. this was the show that he i was surprised that he was the director but when i went to lincoln center and watched the production on real uh because they, they have the amazing lincoln center library if nobody's ever taken part in it you definitely should um and it is a grand spectacle the original production it was very expensive now prince kind of put this whole show together to kind of create it from its inception and so he turned uh with Alfred Urey uh, to one of his favorite creative partners, Stephen Sondheim to write the score. And so Prince's daughter turns his eyes towards an up and coming composer named Jason Robert Brown to write his score. Now we all know Jason Robert Brown at this point. Like you, you can't go through musical theater program where everybody's like, I just love last five years and someone else goes oh well you could like that or you could like songs for a new world and like a good jason robert brown musical and then i'm the i'm the dissenter that was like okay but 13 was really good did he do 13 he wrote 13 oh yeah i which I, I worked every night of the broadway run of that show okay now i loved that show I miss ariana grande uh, ariana grande but uh I will say this is Brown's first Broadway show. And in my opinion, it is his best score to date. It is so varied. It's so nuanced. It's haunting. It's beautiful. It has, you know, it's most well-known songs are old red Hills of home. That's what he said. Big news and all the wasted time. Uh, the show would star Kiss of the Spider Woman's Brent Carver as Leo Frank, City of Angels and Falsettos Carolee Carmelo as Lucille mm-hmm. and Disney channels. Chris, uh, Christy Carlson Romano as Mary Fagan. Oh, yeah! come on now. Before even Stevens, she was Mary Fagan uh, in the show because she was started off as a musical theater kid. If yeah. you don't follow her on social media, she does these great videos where she just kind of walks. And She's she just always walking stories. in the park. I'm like, this is and a very good mode. I was like, number one, a very easy film. And number two, a very good mode of like storytelling. She's very good well, at it. Well, she lives in LA and I hear there's incredible hiking out in LA, which is part of why I'm always just like, maybe I'll just move to LA and I'll become one of those people. But like, what if she um, stepped on a snake? That would suck. Listen, I feel like she's badass enough to, to handle it. So. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, Probably. But definitely follow her on social media if you haven't, because she was also an incredible Belle in Beating the Beast on Broadway. She mm. was in Avenue Q, which was her big like first post-Disney thing. Um And the show follows the story of the 1913 trial of Jewish pencil factory manager Leo Frank, who is being tried for the murder of a child employee named Mary Fagan. Honestly, after opening, most critics absolutely adored the show and audiences who saw it actually loved it as well. Most noting that its haunting and soaring score at its center was why it was succeeding. But most of the vocal reviewers and the vocal audiences were apathetic to cold about the show because it's depiction of racism and the South's legacy with Mm -hmm. racism and anti-Semitism. And they didn't like the use of 
the n-word they didn't like the use of a lot of the it was too real for them in a Mm. musical especially for lincoln center and so that it just didn't establish its footing and it closed in two months it did launch yet two months literally it ran from december to february and so it launched a national tour in uh, 2000 which did a full run and someone who's very close to me uh who's an incredible drag performer in new york city now uh was like pivotal to my time in New York uh, actually started as Frankie in that tour. So a little shout out to Daniel. You are incredible. Yeah. Um, and the yeah. most of the, though to me, the most important production of the show was done in 2007 in London at the Donmar warehouse. Now for some reason, English theater uh, artists are able to tap into some of the American stories in a way that the, American creators aren't and I don't know if it's that we're too close to it we're still trying to preserve something Mm. and make something out of it but uh it's it's just it's one of those things that it just it's so good would see a pared down cast so instead of being like 35 strong with ensemble and everyone with giant set pieces and things it had kind of one central set Donmar is a very also started he really like triple and double booked some of the roles and it it really focused on the story and the relationships in the show and it, they even brought in jason and alfred to rework the book and the score and they took out songs that just didn't work for broadway and weren't working in the um licensed version because no one like this this show it's being done more now but it is not heavily licensed and it's one of those that i always go oh if you're looking for a show for your theater to do that's not ragtime do parade it's the same era of time it's the same style show i like the score better i think it handles the material a little better um but the cast recording is a two disc version and it contains the entire show including all of the scenes in between the songs uh so so it, you can literally understand the show from start to finish. Yeah. So it's the Don Mar Warehouse Parade. Go listen to it. It's on Spotify everywhere that you can uh, stream music. It's there. If they would transfer. Now that production also only ran for two months, but that's kind of what Don Mar does. It does really small productions. Yeah. It didn't move to the West End, but it did move to the Mark Taper Forum in LA. And the only person that didn't come with it was Bertie Caraval, who would go on to play Miss um, Trunchable in the Matilda production like Matilda on the West End and on Broadway he played Leo um with this terrible Woody Allen Brooklyn dialect that's the worst thing about it but his (laughs) singing is so good uh and T.R. Knight from Grey's Anatomy replaced him as Leo uh, in LA now there have been two major concert versions of the show uh which was one starring Laura Bonanti and Jeremy Jordan as Lucille and Leo that's the one I saw some some videos of But the second one was a one-night-only concert at the Jewish Heritage Museum uh, starring, in 2016, starring Stephanie J. Block and her her husband, Sebastian Arcellus, as Lucille and Leo. Oh, my God. And speaking of 13, Allie Trim, who originated Patrice in 13, was Mary Fagan. She was also in the original cast of Allegiance, and she's now currently the swing standby for Glinda on Broadway. Uh, Come on now. Wicked. Yeah, she's doing so good. Um, but this was presented in conjunction with the Jewish Heritage Museum's exhibit called The Trial of Leo Frank, where they Mm -hmm. took you through Leo's life and the trial. 
as well as what would happen after. Now, I had the distinct privilege of seeing this concert production of, of Parade and someone, our stage manager, Sarah Altman, brought in and said, this thing is happening. I'm going. Who else wants to go? There's rehearsal that night. But if enough of us want to go, this would be good. And it was $10. Just to show you how different New York was in 2016, it was $10 for this concert and you got into the museum. Like, so, uh, you know, it, it was an absolute pleasure to see this. And so I'm going to talk about that experience a little bit more later. Uh, but this is kind of come out roughly just before, but in 2022 city center is launching a six day off Broadway revival of this musical starring Ben Platt and Michaela diamond as Lucille and Leo directed by Michael Arden. Yes. I, I need to give a content and context warning to everyone that's listening. Um, this case has been really difficult for me to research, even though I've done the show. I love the show. I've listened to episodes of true crime about this. This case describes some extremely violent acts towards young women and faith and has huge racist and anti-Semitic overtones, undertones, all overtones. Mm -hmm. And I just want to warn everybody that this is going to be a lot for some listeners. I don't want to hold any of the information back. There are some things about um, Leo's death that I did not put in because it was too much for me. Mm. And so I think it's important to hear. So I love you all. Uh, thank Take you for listening to our lead in. Uh, if this might not be good for you, pause now, come back to the episode when you think you can, or go ahead and exit out. Give us a rating and review. Uh, Cause we you're care enjoying about the your show, mental but, health, but we care about your mental health and I don't want anybody to traumatize your commute. Cause I'm assuming most of you are listening to this on your commuter at the gym. Uh, so I'm just going to give you a couple seconds. We're going to pause and then I'm going to launch right in. So thank you for those who are staying. Uh, this, this is going to be a long one for me. I think this is my first long one, but it's a important story to tell. So Welcome to the club of the long. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if you've listened to my other podcasts, most of my episodes are about 90 minutes. I've been getting them shorter, but honestly, if there's a good story to tell and we're having a good time, people are going to listen or just they pause and come back another time. They, they want, want it. They want it. Listen, if you're going to sit through a two and a half hour musical, you're going to sit through a 90 minute podcast. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. <laughs> thank y'all. And there's, no one barking at you did not have your phone out. Well, uh, my dog might be. So let's not put it out <laughs> it's there. It's fine. Well, and uh, I'm, I'm and I'm gonna let everybody <laughs> enjoy whatever their drink or imbibement of choice is uh, right now. A, I have a, a a mango white claw. That is my. I love drink. it. I love it. And I've got some sparkling uh, sparkling ice water Ooh, because yes. fl Florida water is garbage. Okay, so. Leo Frank was born to Rudolph Frank and Ray Jacobs in 1884 in Texas, but the family quickly moved to Brooklyn when Leo was three months old, and this is where he grew up. He attended Pratt Institute, and he would then go to study uh, mechanical engineering at Cornell University, where he would graduate in 1906. So he's very smart. He's very put together, comes from some affluence, um, as much as affluence could have at the time. Uh, soon after his graduation, his uncle Moses Frank invited him to join a pencil factory business that was forming, um, that he would be opening in Atlanta. So Leo came down for three weeks, met with the investors and the kind of the corporate body that would oversee this uh and they offered him a job and so leo to learn about the business moved to germany and apprenticed in pencil making uh at eberhard 
Faber pencils for six months before he moved back. Uh, and starting in August of 1908, he began his work at the factory, uh, which is called the National Pencil Company. And Leo quickly became the superintendent of the factory after just a few months. Come on, Leo. Uh, he made $180 a month plus a cut of the factory's overall profits. Now, in today's money, he would be making, before bonuses, around $70,000 a year. And according to the MTI living wage calculator uh, for Fulton County, which is where this was located, a living wage for a married couple without children right now is right about $58,000 annually. So with everything, Leo was doing quite well for himself. Yeah, for sure. And so uh, if anybody also, just as a tangent, if you haven't looked at your zip code in the MTI living wage calculator, go and look. It gives you kind of a thing of what your area should be. They also encourage you to reach out if it's not accurate. My area just went up quite a bit, but it gives you a good idea if you're looking to move or doing these things. It's a beautiful resource to have. Nice. Um, so shortly after moving to Atlanta, Leo was introduced to Lucille Selig, a daughter of a prominent upper-class Jewish family that founded the local synagogue two generations before. Um, now, by the standards for the time, it was said that Lucille was the spinster daughter and that she was not attractive and so that she didn't get the suitors. She's very quiet but sweet. And against some trepidation, they, kind, they got married. They, they got married. They never did have children. Um, now, many writers have filled in some of the story of their estranged or strange relationship during their marriage. Mm. Uh, the musical does a lot, but there is a lot to be said. But Lucille was an avid letter writer. So we have her diaries. We have her journals. Also, she did a lot of interviews and talked a lot about her experiences and life after Leo passes and she moves a way to be with family. Mm. Uh, and so all of that is, uh, all of that is available and it's a really good together. Cause as we're going to discuss, Lucille gets left out of a lot of academic writing, a lot of historic writing, a lot of articles as just the wife who was affected. But as of the time, all the newspapers were talking about her. We're going to talk about the media as part of this too. So it is very interesting. Um, this idea, but by 1912, Leo, had become a huge part of their local Jewish community. There were about 4,500 Jewish people in Georgia. Most of them were in Atlanta. And he was seen as a community leader within a He's part of a Jewish uh, like service fraternity. Like they were well-respected, well-loved. And he had a very uh, kind of giant life outside of, of his job had some unusual personality quirks. He was very flat. He was very dry, very pragmatic, not very emotional. Mm -hmm. um, and these personality quirks along with, he's not affectionate at all. Like that's something that's kind of notated about his relationship with his wife. Um, that he also brought a lot of like his Northern upbringing. So being, being a, like a Northern, from the Northern Jewish community, which was very different for a lot of the Southern community. Yeah. They talk a lot about, they talk a lot about the established Jewish community of America and then the like Russian Jewish community that was coming in who were okay. seen as like rough immigrants at the time. And like, they were part of the like Leo side of things was part of the like established, well-refined white accepted 
um, Jewish community. Because remember, during this time, Jewish people are not seen as white. Right. They looked white, whatever, which is still a conversation we have. But like, that's going to be really important to look at during this case, because Leo at no point is seen as a white man. He's seen as a Jewish man. Right. Um, Right. And so all of these quirks and his northern upbringing made him quite an outsider within and without his community. Now, there's a lot of presumptions that's been made about Leo because there is some video of the time. There's a lot of firsthand, secondhand uh, talk about his interactions in the workplace and out of the workplace. Uh, Psychologists and just people that have been doing like physical, like they do the like handwriting analysis and like writing analysis and seeing his people on the autism spectrum. Okay. And that that would explain a lot of his personality quirks. Now, I will not put that on him as a person, whatever. That's a thing that we can talk about for a totally different thing. But there's a lot that is discussed that he just wasn't, quote unquote, like everyone else. And so I know with a lot of things now, we look to those moments because this was before the idea of a spectrum or neurodivergence. Or even uh, any know. type of expertise, I'm sure, oh, you could yes. diagnose oh, th- anyone. We're talking, this is still the lobotomy time. This is Hysteria. Women, women, women are, yeah, women are hysterical, those things, but. Do they have the morbs? Have you seen that? Oh, they're yes. like, I've got the morbs. I'm like, girl, I've got same. The morbs. Uh-huh, girl, me too. same. <laughs> There's also been quite a few seeing interactions between his friendships from college and like his male Jewish fraternity members and things, there is a huge presumption that Leo was gay Mm. or bi. And uh, that that's why there was not really the physical aspects of him and his wife's relationship. It was said that he slept in two beds, Mm. a lot of these different things. Again, this, a lot of this doesn't get brought up in any of the articles about the trial because they're, that's not what's important to a lot of people also because it's mostly like cis white straight people writing about this case right um but also like i feel like back then like married couples sleeping in two different beds was quite common yeah and i feel like not a lot of married people liked each other back then i i think it's also some cryptic letter writing and some diaries and things that were found of leo's Oh, okay Uh, again it's a lot of things but it is alluded to that Leo there might have been some queerness to Leo which again would add to more if that was something someone found out about him and it would be something that would get brought up because again also there is this weird idea at this time that Jewish people were just making and hoarding money and getting drunk and being sexual deviants which I was like I don't know where that came from at all stereotypes yeah yeah, yeah, and so that's why there was a huge push of like the respectability aspects to the Jewish community of Atlanta, which is comes up a lot, especially in the writings pre nineteen seventy about this case, because this is a case that got written about a lot. So, are you saying that the Jewish community in the South was like presented themselves more as like a very respectable? Yes. Yes, much more than about, like the New York hard, like hitting New Yorkers. Well, not even then, because even that Jewish community was about that as well. It's the mm. established Jewish community of money and affluence versus the immigrant Jewish community that was coming in at that time. I understand. And I understand. They were, they, they were also, I'm going to use a phrase here because it's in the writing. I do not agree with it. Uh, they were called like gypsies and evil magic workers these Mm -hmm. were some of the more super superstitious aspects of like jewish faith and culture were coming in from the other parts of europe and so uh, it's 
it's this the idea of like the Germanic Jew versus the Russian Jew. Okay. Was the big kind of fight between the two. Um, and so it was this idea of refinement. So it also came with affluence and in a lot of the communities, people were angry because much like now people get angry at the people who seem to have status who were from a everybody immediately goes and attacks Jewish people when it comes to money. And it's like, right. that's stupid. Like fucking stop that. Yeah. So our story is kind of drop us onto April 21st of 1913 due to a supply shortage nationally. Uh, the national pencil factory had to lay off many of its young workers uh, that worked at the factory. So like many 13 year old Mary Fagan was going to the factory to pick up her final paycheck for her work, but she unfortunately wouldn't make it home. Because just after 3 a.m. on April 23rd, 22nd, uh, April 22nd, Newt Lee, the night watchman, finds a soot and dirt covered corpse of a small girl while cleaning overnight. That little girl would later be, later be identified as Mary Fagan. In first 1899 into an established Georgia family of tenement farmers. Now, tenement farmers, for anyone, it, they're like sharecroppers. They were poor families who were working land for other people. Uh, so there was kind of a, a theme of poverty throughout her life. Um, her father died before she was born. Shortly after Mary's birth, her mother, Frances Fagan, moved the family back to their hometown of Marietta, Georgia. Mary left school at 10 years old to work part-time in a textile mill. And in 1912, just after uh, moving to the city of Atlanta, uh, that spring, Fagan took a job at the National Pencil Company, where she earned 10 cents an hour operating a curling machine that inserted the rubber erasers uh, into the metal tips of pencils. And curling is that, you know, that ridged spot by the eraser yeah. that 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 is formed by the curling machine uh, was the metal. That I, would, that I would chew as a child. Yep. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and so the children workers would work about 55 hours per week. Uh, and just in comparison, uh, for Mary versus Leo, uh, she's roughly making $286 annually in 1912, but in today's money, that's about $9,000 annually. Yeah. Originally when the authorities first show up, uh, after being called by Newt in the middle of the night, they thought this was a little black girl. Feeling the case very differently until they realize that she is just so dirty and so covered in soot laying in piles in the basement uh, where the uh, incinerator was. Mm -hmm. uh, and suddenly the case was much more severe for local authorities Ugh. as they would. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. getting mad. Oh, just <laughs> fucking wait. Oh, oh just fucking wait. Cause it's going to get worse. It's like, um, it's a child. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yep. Well, and that's the thing also like talking about newt when they're comparing Watchman and being left alone at the factory, he had to clock in every half an hour on his time card to prove that he was staying at work and not sleeping oh on the job. God. Yeah, all of this nonsense, which definitely That's is racially sweet. coded. Now, without going into much detail, she was found crumpled in the pile. Um, her mouth, nostrils, and lungs were full of the same dark dirt, sawdust, and soot that was on her body. her undergarments were still on they were showing signs of sexual assault right. as well as marks and wounds around her neck that it suggested strangulation was the cause of death 
Now, as the police began to break down the crime scene, it was found that a sliding side door had been tampered with so that even though it would close, it wouldn't latch. And along with bloody fingerprints, they found a pipe that had been used as some sort of crowbar to get it open. I should surprise no one. The police didn't process the scene correctly. And a lot of footprints that were there and evidence in the room was lost, trampled, and destroyed. Which... Oh! Oh, bo 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 fucking shocked here. Now, two notes were found that would be known as the murder notes. And I've posted them as part of today's pictures on our social media. Those There's a lot of really interesting images because we think of 1912 1913 is still kind of a early industrial time newspaper every day with this there's renderings of the factory throughout the path taken from the metal room down to the basement all these things that like were in the exhibit at the jewish heritage museum and there was so much that i took for granted because of the time now the notes were written on uh, pay receipts like uh, and were in the basement made by uh, people who had already left the factory which is going to be kind of important later it's written on both of them in what seemed like a childish, child, childish way especially for somebody that only had like a second grade education fifth grade education mm. were meant to implicate nudely is the nudely is the culprit of the crime Naturally, the police immediately took Newt into custody and put him into jail. These were gradually, over time, uh, they also spoke with a friend of Mary's that they thought also did it. And they started realizing that these two weren't doing it. Newt was so afraid. They were trying to get him to, they were trying to like bully him into um, a confession, which we still see happening today. But by Monday the police theorized that the murder occurred on the second floor of the um, metal room where the, where Mary worked, uh, which was across the hall from Leo's office. And this was based on hair that was found on the lathe that was used. And there was ground, there was blood on the machine and on the ground of the second floor. Mm. It was said that Newt attempted to contact Leo just before 4 a.m. because he was the superintendent and would have needed to know. But for some reason, he was unreachable. So it wasn't until later that morning that police reached out to Leo to have him come to the factory for this information. So like hours later, it's about four or five hours later. So when the police arrive at 7 a.m. without telling the specifics of what happened to the factory, he was trembling, he was pale, his voice was hoarse and quivering, and he was rubbing his hands together and asking questions before the police could even answer them. So a lot of these are those moments where... It's, a, it's suspicious to them. Where, like, a lot of psychologists have looked at, like, these things of how people handle trauma and what's mm -hmm. happening. Because, um, I mean, how else is, like... A 31-year-old man supposed to handle that a 13-year-old girl that worked in his factory was murdered. Well, you can you can never... I mean, they say that with, like, 911 calls, too. It's like, you can't base how someone reacts in a crisis mode. Like, yep. you, you can't base... Um, like, that's not evidence. That's, like, because everybody handles trauma differently. 
But even to today, most police departments will decide based on that 911 call or their first interaction mm -hmm. with somebody if they feel like they are grieving legitimately enough or not, whether someone's guilty. And so we're going to see this moment affect Leo for the rest of his life. Mm. Mary Fagan and that he would need to check his payroll books because something that Leo did as a superintendent was he kept meticulous, flawless books on everything. And the detectives took Frank to the morgue to see Fagan's body and then to the factory where Frank viewed the crime scene. Mm. And he walked the police through the entire building willingly um, and w was completely voluntary of all information, anything they needed, he gave to them. So Frank returned home at about 10.45 a.m. And at this point, Leo was not considered a suspect. Leo, accompanied by his lawyer, Ruther Roser, gave a statement to the police to outline his whereabouts on the Saturday of the murder. And because of Leo's meticulous records working, he was able to give them a, like, I was with this person from 12.05 to 12.10. This person showed up at 2.05. Um, Cause again, you have to go to him to get your pay. And so he dates exactly when he gave out those things. So Frank stated that Fagan was in his office from 12.05 to 12.10 and that Newtley arrived sometime around four, but was sent away and told to return around 6 p.m. because Leo was not ready for him to take over the factory for the night. There was a recently fired employee named James Gant, who arrived and had an altercation with Leo around 6 p.m. Uh, he had been fired the week before because of some performance issues and then $2.50 went missing from the cash box, uh, which Gant had been left alone with altercation with Gant and Leo. Most yeah. of this was done, most of the, 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 all the records that he pulled forward were payroll records, time cards, those kinds of things for that day. Now, something that I find strange, but I guess makes sense to me, is that Roser made uh, Leo to his bare skin to prove that he had no marks or no bruises or anything to prove that nobody fought him, that he hadn't fought back with anyone, that there was no way. Because, like, it's still one of those things that even, like, Leo was a small, slight man. Right. Like, we're talking, like, five, 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 six, very thin if you think Buster Keaton, like Don Knotts, that style yeah. of man, Leo yeah. looks a lot like both of them. Prove that he didn't hurt Miss Fagan because clearly somebody had to drag her from the second floor yeah. to the basement. And there are only two ways into the basement and it's from the elevator, which will be brought up later or through a tiny, like a, a attic style trap door down a, a dead climb ladder to just kind of drop down into the basement. It was quite the thing. So you would have had to like firemen's lift someone over your shoulder yeah. and carry them down. Yeah. There would be, there would be marks. There would be, I mean, I'm sure if Mary was covered in so much soot that there would be soot in fingernails and in hair. And well, and that was the problem is there were drag marks. There were boot, boot prints and all everything in the soot and stuff, but the police trampled all of it. So none of it could be photographed <sighs> because we did have photographic evidence of this. Yeah. Now, while this was happening, the police were at Leo's residence looking at his clothes, at his shoes mm -hmm. that he wore on the day, as well as any towels or linen, finding no signs of blood or that they cleaned up blood. Because, you know, at this point with laundry, this is just before laundry machines were really in homes. They had a housekeeper named Minnie, um, who's a much larger role in the musical than she kind of comes to in the actual case. Mm. Um but they didn't find anything like not even like 
that Lucille was on her period and they found blood. Like nothing, like literally nothing. <laughs> um, but at this point, it's starting to dawn on Leo and Lucille, as well as Leo's legal team, that it's clear that the police think he is the murderer. Right. And most of this is literally based just on their first interactions with him mm-hmm. on the day that they found her body. Not on the actual so, evidence that they're not finding. Yep. So in addition to his lawyer and the legal team, Leo hires two men named Darley and Scott from the Pinkerton National Detective Agency to investigate any and all leads separate from the police to help prove his innocence. He thought this would help, that they would get a much more subjective look at everything uh, overall to just kind of bring everything in together. Now, unbeknownst to Leo, according to laws at the time, Pinkerton was required to turn over all materials and informations found, even if it worked against Leo in the case. Now, you ready for some shady shit? A cab, a cab. And this was kept from Leo until the end that Harley, Harry Scott was deeply connected to the local police force of Atlanta, including his best friend, John Black, who was leading the police investigation and was the major proponent of pushing the idea and introducing the idea that Leo killed Mary Fagan. Mm-hmm. And so... Goes all the way to the top! Yep, and so they talked to everyone in the factory, and everyone in the factory had a very different opinion of Leo than the people in his personal life. Mm. And so there were lots of lies about like being sexually propositioned by Leo, which is funny because that's literally in no way, shape or form ever been part of his um, psychological way of dealing with people. Like even Lucille said, like he just wasn't a sexually like he wasn't a sexual person at all, like all these things. And so the next day on April 29th, the police investigation uh, goes to a Newt Lee's home. And they find in a a shirt in what's called a burn barrel. So these were barrels kept during the time that people would just start fires in. And it was a shirt that had blood smeared from the shirt tail all the way up to the armpit. And where was this found? In at Newt Lee, the night watchman uh, at his home. Okay. And so keep in mind, Newt is still in prison at this point. He's been held in jail this whole time. Um, but under clear inspection, the shirt was unworn, mm. unlike everything else in the burn box barrel, and it was most likely a plant. Mm. So, of course, the police immediately just thought Leo had done it or paid somebody to do it. <laughs> Though instead of following the other leads that fit the information that they found, right. they moved and arrested Leo. So that was at 11 a.m. By 11.30 that morning, just after finding the shirt at Lee's house, Leo was arrested, and in a public statement made by Steve Oney, uh, who is the sheriff, I believe, it was said, no single development has led to proof that Leo Frank murdered Mary Fagan. But instead, from the cumulative weight of Sunday's Sunday's suspicions and Monday's misgivings have been added to the scale that tipped against Mr. Frank. Well, they love an alliteration. I'm fucking sorry, but literally because you didn't like how someone dealt with the trauma of seeing a dead 13 year old girl that worked for you, Mm. seeing your factory with blood, like being pulled out of your home on a Sunday, like all of these fucking things. And they, they thought he was just, it also had a lot to do with that. He was considered soft. He was not considered masculine. Yep. 
And so these are also like white, good old boy Southern police. Like, uh, so Em, I need a moment because that is just yeah. what, what, what are you? <sighs> I can't. I like, like and I wish I could say things were so different now. We're not in oh, Atlanta. No. I'm looking at you. You're certainly mm-hmm. not. I'm living in Florida. I can't say shit though. New York, you're not either. <laughs> looking at you, NYPD, frankly. Mm. But like, so on April 30th, the next day, the coroner's inquest happens and lots of people are brought in and talked to about Leo for Leo, including a lots of friends of Mary's who insist that Mary had been complaining about her boss, Leo Mm. and women said that he flirted with them, made outright propositions, which again, I'm just going to say is not in his character based on his entire community. Now Mm. that is what a lot of people will say about abusers. There's a thing, but also like, if he's truly a neurodivergent person and these things, he's so nervous talking to people. And a lot of people, a lot of the, it's, it's also the working class mindset of this man who comes from money and this new gen, this new generations of people that have moved into the Southern cities who are Jewish, who seem to come in with money are running businesses. They're brought in to run businesses. And a lot of the farming poor community have a lot of, they've been forced fed Mm. bullshit against these communities by the people in power. So that is one of those things. It's like, how do you unify the people that you're actually stealing from? Give them a common enemy. Exactly. So it's clearly what that is. And so also a lot of people wanted him to be jovial and Southern and just cracking a joke with them and just, Oh, it's all right. You've poor dumb workers. And that's just not the kind of person he was. Like, he was very nervous. He was fidgety. He did apparently have a very thick New York accent. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just a thing. And it's also just like, it's just completely different ways of life in the North versus the South. Especially, like, especially then. Like, I mean, times, there. I just feel like there was so much disconnect still Mm -hmm. from the Civil War era um, that, like, it's it's like it's it still was probably like two different countries in terms of how people acted and how people spoke and then add your mm-hmm. culture on top of it and it's like yeah well so the musical is called parade because technically the day mary died was a holiday mm. no one was working at the factory and it was confederate memorial day so it's still a vestige from the Confederate South. Like this okay. is a, con- it is a, like they even wrote a really fun quippy. I rolled my eyes very, Le- yeah. very oh. heavily. <laughs> there are some funny lines written in the musical about Leo being quippy about why do we still celebrate that? Cause like Lucille is like a Southern woman with like a Southern drawl and she's got that Southern gentilism and Leo just doesn't have those things, which again, it's just, he's culturally brought up in a different setting. Yeah. Like, it's that thing when people are like, oh, New Yorkers aren't nice, but they're kind, but Southerners are nice, but they're not kind. It's it's like that thing yeah. of the two together. You know, it's just. And so, again, I'm going to bring up so many times in the future about his actions and personality that the detectives also said during this in, uh, inquest by the coroner. They so far had obtained no conclusive evidence or clues pointing to who committed the crime and that it is a baffling mystery. So again, there is no actual evidence that Leo did it. 
Like there is, so it's going to be said later, but there's only 18 minutes of the day that Leo did not have accounted for. Mm -hmm. And both the coroner, the police and Jim Connolly, who we're going to meet later said that it would take about 30 minutes to kill someone, commit the sexual act, take them from the, the second floor down to the basement. And so it's just one of those things that it's like, in no way does this ever actually check out, but they are so biased against this man because he's so different than them that they will do anything, anything to prove that he is guilty. Instead of, instead of doing the proper job of justice and finding out who the killer is of this young girl who could be out there doing the same thing to other people. But they're good old boys looking out for their community and they don't want to ruffle up the feathers of the fine working class people. Oh no, your honor. Absolutely oh, not no, your, your honor. honor. No, no, no. Falcon Leghorn over uh, here. Your honor. It could not have been any <laughs> oh, yeah, of us yeah, southern yeah, boys. Yeah, yeah, your honor. <laughs> your honor. Oh, I fucking hate it. So, and yet, Leo Frank and Newt Lee were still held in jail for weeks by local police. So, so they have, so they have both of them in jail. They still have Newt Lee in jail as well because they are determined that he had something to do with it and that he felt guilty. And that's why they called the police. They still assumed that like, yeah, even though like Newt cannot read or write, like that is just a thing Newt cannot do. Yeah. Like he can punch the letters on or the numbers on a telephone. And at this point, that's also when you picked up and dialed and they said you were, you were asking to be connected to somebody. Right. Right. So yeah. And so the Burns detective agency was brought in to help with the investigation as kind of an impartial voice. This was something that was done at the time. However, they said that they removed themselves from the case because, and I quote, the agency came down to investigate a murder case, not engage in petty local politics. They felt the community and police force had already decided what happened and any work they would have done would be pointless and cited that the most notable feeling was the notion that Frank was able to avoid prosecution due to being a rich Jew buying off the police and paying for private agencies. Now that was the community view, not the detective agency's view. They were based in Chicago and this was a apparently pretty reputable police officer before that formed an agency to do work outside of police departments. How does it make sense for someone to buy off the police, but still be the number one suspect? Thank you. That doesn't make any Thank sense. You. Literally, my brain went brr. Like, well, and so the police and the newspapers, because there are three major newspapers in Atlanta covering this, and we will talk about them a little bit, and all over Georgia, they were playing this as the evil Jew versus the downtrodden black person. God. Black people to commit these crimes against poor little white girls. And it seems like this is the one time that they cared about, like, the life of a black man. Like, well, it's we're going to talk about it when we get to somebody in just a bit. But it is that thing of where they decided that to them, a fine, upstanding African-American person was easier for them to grapple with or or a criminal black person was easier to grapple with 
because it was a black person being manipulated to help a Jewish person who was doing something evil. And they would rather have, quote unquote, dumb black people who did the work in their community than evil, rich, manipulative Jewish people. No, again, I want to, I want to come, I need to comment to everyone outside that this is not my feeling. Absolutely this is not. just what is in, in all my best friends are Jewish. I'm kidding. No, my, one of my best friends is, but no, this is, <laughs> this is just the fact that this is talking about the idea of playing marginalized groups against mm -hmm. each other in the way that you're not seeing who the true evil is. And that is the institution yeah. because this is also police forces that were formed out of being slave hunters. And this these, is and this is exactly South. how the institution was meant to work. It's working very, very well. Like it's exactly how it was meant to work. And, mm -hmm. and it's just, it's like truly like marginalized people, especially back then, like there was no winning. There was no winning in this situation. And this was also the police department being like, look, we do care about you. Oh. So, so keep working as an underpaid, uneducated uh, person whose family was just freed 30 years ago. Keep doing these jobs because we are looking out for you and your community when they fucking worked. That's they so, worked. That's so they, still they still aren't. Yeah. Are. And I can't still believe that literal historians who have written on this case say that while the racism of the South was so rampant that it didn't present much anti-Semitism and Atlanta was the most liberal of Southern cities at the time. Are you fucking kidding me? Are well, you fucking kidding me? I mean, if that's the truth, that's real scary. <laughs> like, also, just because someone doesn't say that they hate Jewish people doesn't mean that they're not because everybody in power's actions in this even Governor Slayton, who would go on to like commute Leo's sentence, still showed a ton of. It was like when you're the when you're the most liberal conservative in a room, like you're still a fucking conservative person. Like it's one of those things you're still acting against the better judgments of people. Like it's one of those things. Like I'm I'm sure people at home are getting upset. I'm sorry. Go talk to Laura Osnes. I don't know what to tell y'all at this point. Like. <laughs> You're just on the wrong side of history at this point. I love you. I come from that background. I come from this. Uh, like, I'm a literal Southern evangelical growing up. Like, it's just... But this is just you know, fucking ridiculous. Like, like peace and love, love and light. But, like, if you don't like it, go find another podcast. Literally, it's one of those things. It's like my, my mother growing up. No, I love her so much. And she doesn't listen to this, so it's fine. She said, no, I love all people, but... Oh, there we go. <laughs> But that, that little, that, I'm, I'm trying to say this without using, my parents didn't say anything vehemently racist, but it was also the, the, that cute little brown boy just needs to learn some English. My Lord, he's living in America. And we're at a Mexican restaurant, like literally talking about the bus boy. It's one of those things that's like, I love everybody, but do you need to be so loud about your pride? We don't need rainbows everywhere. And I, I will remind everyone that the rainbow was Lord's, the Lord's sign to us that he would never flood the earth again. And I was like, well, sweetheart, the rainbow is now a vision that my basement's going to flood because it's Pride Month. Hello. Hello. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. We're, we're recording this in June to pull the Emerald Curtain back a little. We're recording this during Pride Month. But yeah, it's just one of those things that this is still, we are still fighting against people going, yeah. well, I'm not, I, you're one of the good ones. I'm not one of the bad ones. Yeah. But you're one of the good ones and it's like what the fuck do you mean by that exactly like, like kind of conservative like middle-aged straight men fucking love me for some reason 
And it's just because I talk to people. I have that face where when I lived in New York, I could have headphones in and reading and somebody would sp- like start a conversation with me. Like someone would wave at me to get, like I just have that face and I, literally I'm the last person that wants to speak to anyone. <laughs> like, like, sorry not to be that person, but it's just like, and they'll be like, oh, you're one of the good gays. I am not. And I'm like, sweetheart, don't worry. I'm not going to hit on you, baby. <laughs> you're not go, my type, go, honey. Thank go you. back under your bridge and eat some, eat some billy goats gruff and guard your treasure baby because like i'm not interested uh says the man who looks like shrek it's fine uh (laughs) but you know it's it's just this is all this is that point when doing research like my mind just spins because Mm. they're saying that clearly this man didn't do it but they he makes them so uncomfortable as a human being as a man as a person that they have that I just, I just don't understand. Like, just mind your business. Also, meanwhile, a community of poor farmers and workers are mourning a loss of a daughter, mm-hmm. of a granddaughter, mm-hmm. of a community member, of a well... Mary Fagan was well-loved. She was known as an absolute beauty. She always had ribbons in her hair. Like she I know, I saw a picture. I was like, come on, ribbons. Well, and... Well, so there's a beautiful... Uh, so there's a really sad song called It Don't Make Sense when they're... It's Mary's funeral, and uh, the, her mother's actress sings as she loved when I tied ribbons in her hair, and it's the part where I always start gushing tears during that song. It's so beautiful. Uh, bravo, Jason, for manipulating me in a way that Pascal Paul never has. Uh, in the, <laughs> oh. um, so this just but seems cast, to be going... But cast us if, if you need us, Pascal Listen, listen. Listen, I don't act much anymore, but like write a baritone pe- track, Pascal Paul. I dare you. I dare you to write a baritone track. I dare you because I don't think you can. Um, this seems to be going in circles, right, Em? Like I feel like yeah. we're just rotating in circles. But yeah. like how they, how are they actually going to prove any of this in court? I don't. Part of me doesn't want to know, Maddie, but I'm yeah. sure. I like it, it. Doesn't sound like it's going to be good. There's a reason why 30 minutes of the end of Act One is the court. Thir- the final 30 minutes of Act One. 30 minutes? 30 minutes. It's six songs. It's so great. It's some of the best musical theater out there. I mean, that's but that's a lot of info. It is a lot of info. I mean, the show's two and a half hours. Mm. But some of the best songs in the show are also in those moments as well. Because uh, it leaves the audience literally gutted as you go out to intermission. And then you have to come back. And you're like, fuck, we got it. And you're like, wait, if he was found guilty, what do we do? Um, so I need to introduce you to one of the... Greatest song and dance man that has ever been in the history of crime, in the history of court dramas. His name is Jim Connolly. Now, if you've seen the musical, the character of Connolly is given one of the most rousing and amazing musical numbers in contemporary musical theater. Like, think, sit down, you're rocking the boat level of just getting you up. Like, whipped into shape from Legally Blonde. Just that kind of level of manipulation and like you feel that fervor and you understand why the crowd is going nuts. Right. Right. So what this book writer and composer were, this is their way of working the real life influences of life into the musical. So Connolly was the janitor at the factory. Okay. And he had quite a police record and quite a violent past. Now, I will preface this with, we should never judge someone by their rap sheet because especially when they're people of color, they're just, especially men of color 
are disproportionately more likely to have a rap sheet for things that they are not actually guilty for or minor offenses that were made major offenses. We're going to see that. But in this, this case, this man is a true, evil, bad, violent person. Now, he only came on the police's radar because during the investigation, he was seen publicly cleaning blue clothing to get rid of a giant red stain that appeared to be blood. But he swore it was rust from the factory. Yeah, and Lizzie Borden was cleaning paint off of her dress. Yep. So he originally said that he was jumping from saloon to saloon, shooting dice and drinking the day away on the murder, the day the murder happened. And, but many, many witness statements, like 50 witness statements, put a man matching his description and as simple as saying a black man in a large hat with a blue shirt and pants in the lobby of the factory around noon on the day of the murder. Something that may seem strange for me to bring up, but it was found out by police that unlike most non-white factory workers of the time, Jim could read and he could write hmm. okay. around about a second grade level today. Okay. And his grammar and handwriting were exact matches for the murder notes left with the body. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. May 24th, we're jumping uh-huh. back to May 24th, uh-huh. and he would start giving statements to the police. And this is what started his path being the star witness of the trial as Leo's accomplice and conspirator. He admitted that he wrote the notes swearing that Leo had called him into his office the day before the murder and told him to write them down. Yeah. You know, you know what, you know what lies do? They get Uh very elaborate. The more you tell them. Oh, just wait. There's a reason. Oh, I, everybody, I want you to pause and I want you to go listen to the Don Mar version of that's what he said. I'm just going to let you. I'm just going to let you pause. I'm going to let you go listen. Okay, great. You're back. I'm so glad you did that. Now, after the show, go back and listen to the whole thing and be prepared to cry. It's one of like two musical albums like that and In the Heights that I listen to top to bottom and I just cry at a point. I just cry no matter where I am. Um, so, again, it's proven later that the the like pay receipts or the receipts that these were written on were from ex-employees of the factory that attested that they had quit their office job and moved everything down to be incinerated months before, like two or three months before the murder. So it would have been in the basement where the body was found. Just these boxes of like old, like, because this is in the time of like mimeo copies and like carbon copies and things. And so they were just like, they weren't needed anymore. They weren't records. And so Leo wouldn't have had access to them in his office. They weren't new. They weren't current. The dates were old. And so the police were really skeptical about his story. Not only because it was implied that it was premeditated by Frank, but also because it suggested that Frank had confessed to Connolly and involved him. Mm. Like now we're, to his second official affidavit, but his third statement to the police. Conley admitted that he had lied about his Friday meeting with Frank, where Leo had asked them to do it the day before. But he had said he met Frank on the street on Saturday and was told to follow him 
back to the factory. Frank told him to hide in the wardrobe to avoid being seen by two women that Leo had gotten to come visit him at the factory. Again, this is a holiday, so no people are there, so he could have these trysts in his office. There, this would culminate in the musical in a in a scene called "Why Don't You Come Up to My Office," where the actor playing Leo puts on a very different kind of character type and dances around all of the factory girls and being like, "Why don't you come up to my office?" All these things, promising them jewels and gifts and money. And again, it's just not a thing him to write gave him cigarettes and then told him to leave the factory he went out drinking and saw a movie and said that he did not learn about the murder until he went back to work on monday and the police find that hard to believe but they still the police were loving having conley because even though his information kept shifting it still worked in their favor against frank and helped them bolster the approval and uh, acceptance of the community because they had this black person being manipulated by a rich white Jew or by a rich Jewish person. Mm. Again, it's going to continue to be a theme. Now, something we will also assume to be part of the major case is the media tie-in. Uh, now, currently where you get the news at every second in your palm of your hand. Right. But at this point, it was just newspapers. And they were the only major source of information because even most people didn't have radios. They weren't accessible, that kind of thing. Uh, and the major local newspapers printed multiple updates a day. So you could have a morning edition, uh, an afternoon edition, an evening edition, and a late edition to update on things that were happening around the world because they would receive um, stories by telephone or by telegraph, those kinds of things. In the Atlanta Georgian, gave the story front page coverage and they published up to 16 to 20 updates a day. Wow. So imagine all these little boys going extra, extra read all about it. Um, and so three officials from the pencil company, Leo's bosses who chose him to work there right. were not convinced. And they let the Georgian, uh, the Atlanta journal know this. They contended that Connolly had followed another employee into the building intending to rob her, but found Fagan as an easier target because this is something that had happened before Jim constantly stole from women, sexually assaulted them and then took their purse. Like this was something that had happened before the police placed little credence in the officials own investigation into their theory for the failure to locate Fagan's purse that every single witness had testified she carried into the factory. And Leo had said she had in his office. For my years talking about true crime, that the police and the officials 90% of the time impede the path of truth and justice. And the system is there to uphold their place of power, mm. not finding answers of truth for the victims. Because at the end of the day, we not only have Leo and Newt Lee for much of this, like Newt is eventually released, but like, it's Leo and Lucille, the whole Jewish community of Atlanta, mm. as well as the tenement farming community that Mary is part of. So the poor, like immigrants as well. Like this is just an attack on all of these people. And gets painted by both sets of lawyers because both sides are kind of terrible. 
And so the police attempted on May 28th to arrange a confrontation between Jim Connolly and Leo Frank at the jail. So Jim Connolly's also in jail this whole time as well. Right to not meet without his attorney who was out of town and the police quoted the Atlanta Constitution saying that his refusal was an indication that Leo was guilty. No, no, it's not. It's your constitutional right. Yep. Yep. Viewers, uh, listeners, if you are ever taken into custody and you are asked to answer questions, whatever the case, you get a lawyer there immediately. Don't say a damn thing. Get a lawyer. And don't take a polygraph. Yeah. Don't do well, nothing. I was literally listening to today's episode of My Favorite Murder. Yeah, me uh, too. With, with the guy from Dateline. And when he Keith talked Morrison. about the, the, mm. He's amazing. And that he talked about that the UK uh, uh, police system, their law system, says that you cannot be alone in a room with somebody because it stops you from being able to force a confession out of somebody. Yeah. Like there are all these things and we just have all these people who are forced into confessions for something. That Especially then the police. Kids. Especially kids, 17, 16, 17 year old kids who then get tried as adults. And then like uh, poor people who didn't do anything wrong other than being impoverished as far as the system goes. And that's not something wrong. It's not their fault. And so then like there was that case they talked about today where the dad was forced into saying that he killed his daughter and that it was found out that it was another man that had been doing it to like 25 other women. And then the police decided that the father had convinced the man to do it so he could watch. It's just so, it's just so fucked up. It's so twisted. And it's just, it just goes to show that it's like, I mean, when people are manipulated into a confession Mm -hmm. and then it's so hard to take that back because. Yep. And to fight for your actual freedom and you know, the manipulation that happens in these rooms when you don't have a lawyer present is just like, we don't know the, ex- we don't even know the extent of what that manipulation yep. can be. Now in the actual court proceedings, I know I'm having to jump around in different parts of the story, but you're doing it's a great kind of, job. It's kind of how this has to go for me. So on May 29th, Connolly is brought to the stand and he is interviewed Oh, no, 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 no. I, I lied. I'm so sorry, guys. This is, we're not at the court case yet. So Connolly is then interviewed this time for four hours. And once again, a new affidavit is made and he changes his story again. And he showboats and he dramatizes the stories he's telling it. Apparently, Jim Connolly is an incredible, Connolly is an incredible storyteller. He's weaving the story. He's in, uh, charismatic he's enigmatic mm. like people are enjoying watching him he it's like a vaudeville performance it's right and in this new version he said leo came to him and said that he had picked up a woman and she had fallen and hit her head and he needed jim's help he then said that he and frank took the body to the basement via the elevator then returned to frank's office where the murder notes were dictated Connolly then hid in the wardrobe uh, after the two had returned to the office. He said Frank gave him two hundred dollars, and when he asked uh, when he asked why he changed his story again, Connolly was quoting saying, "The reason I am not told this before is I thought Mr. Frank would get out uh, and help me out, and I decided to tell the whole truth about the matter when it was evident Mr. Frank was not getting out." Connolly changes his story concerning the $200. He said Frank decided to withhold the money until Connolly had burned Fagan's body in the basement furnace. 
the Georgian, the newspaper, hired William Manning Smith to represent Connolly for $40. Smith was known for specializing in representing black clients, although Smith believed Connolly had told the truth in his final affidavit. He began, he really was concerned jailhouse interviews with crowds of reporters and swooning guests outside it, like we've seen this for years like he literally in a different time conley would have been a cult leader oh yeah he would have established some sort of following so smith was really anxious about reporters from the hearst papers who had taken all leo's side so all the northern papers for by william randolph hearst and he arranged for Connolly to be moved to a different jail and severed his relationship with this newspaper, but continued to still represent Jim. And so he did this. So no one could have access to Connolly. Nobody could be doing these big, I mean, it's very, what's so funny to think about is this is so similar to the story in Chicago where these women are just becoming, but this is, I mean, very different. Um, But yeah, he was becoming this like local celebrity and people were like somehow sympathizing with him for being forced to do these things. Hmm. So it was clear Connolly was seeking the star power from this and it was troubling. It was causing trouble, but jumping ahead a bit on February 24th of the next year of 20, uh, 2014, 1914 Connolly was sentenced to a year in jail, a year in jail for being an accomplice after the fact. Ridiculous. And the Atlanta Georgian went as far as to print doctored morgue photos of Mary's face on another woman's body who what? had gruesome wounds. Absolutely. They're, they're purposely um, putting out clickbait. What we would consider clickbait. Yeah. Lies, conjecture. Yeah. Like soon after the murder, Atlanta's mayor criticized the police for their steady release of information and disinformation to the public. The governor noting the reaction of the public to press sensationalism soon after Lee and Frank's arrests organized 10 militia companies in case that they needed to re, uh, repulse a mob action against the prisoners. So from the beginning, whirling people into mass hysteria continued nearly unabated throughout the investigation, the trial and subsequent appeal processes. This story also made national news and, of course, wow. was given from most of the newspapers outside of Georgia took Leo's side. But they also were only being able to really share what was being presented. And then, like, they started sending so many, like, reporters and things to the actual court case. Like, it's just, like, Beatles mania level batshit. It's seen as, it was seen as entertainment. Opinion. Absolutely. It informed and defined public opinion. And much of the public's attention was directed at the police and the prosecution to whom they were lauding and holding up and expected to find Mary's killer and bring them to justice. Mm. The prosecutor, Hugh Dorsey, had recently lost two high-profile cases, notorious Foghorn Leghorn-style racist old Southern white man. (laughs) And one state newspaper wrote that another defeat and in a case where the feeling was so intense would have been a literal nail, final nail in the coffin for Mr. Dorsey as a solicitor and a lawyer. Maybe it should have been. Maybe it fucking should have been. Action directly from sources. Like word for word, because there's so much happening during the trial. And there is a reason that in the musical, this section, again, at the end of act one is about a half an hour from start to finish. So... 
On May 23rd, 1913, a grand jury convened to hear evidence on an indictment against Leo Frank on the murder of Mary Fagan. The prosecutor, Dorsey, presented only information to obtain the indictment, assuring the jury that additional information would be provided during the trial. It's the same jury during the trial. So they're also hearing things that were never presented again during the trial. Mm. The next day, May 24th, the jury voted for an indictment. Meanwhile, Frank's legal team suggested that, uh, to the media that Jim Connolly was the actual killer. And this is the first time that this is being brought up publicly and put pressure on another grand jury to indict him. The jury foreman on his own authority convened the jury on July 21st on Dorsey's advice. And they decided not to indict Conley. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, at all? Yeah, at all. At all. Like, into the murder of Mary. Yeah. Nothing makes sense. He would eventually go to to jail once, uh, or be pulled from jail and be indicted in collusion for helping Leo. But, like, yeah. They decided not to indict Connolly. Again, I say for a third time. You can see a lot of the legal paperwork from this case. Through several sources, the Jewish Heritage Museum had a lot in the exhibit that I went to. And so I still have some of those photos. And so it's just kind of crazy what we were able to get our hands on from this. Because this was also um, before redacting happened. So it's just like open files still. Uh, and so on July 28th. Just like the, the full, trial- like the full thing. That's wild. Yeah, the full thing. On July 28th, the trial began at Fulton County Superior Court, uh, which was the old city hall building. The judge, uh, Roan, Leonard Roan, had been serving as a judge in Georgia since 1900. And there is a reason why... Your honor. In the musical, uh, there's a reason why in the musical that this role gets double cast with the, uh, with the same, the old soldier role, who was a Civil War soldier. I'm just going to say that. Prosecution team was led by Dorsey and included William Smith, who is Connolly's attorney and Dorsey's jury consultant. Frank was represented by a team of eight lawyers, several from New York, which also I think really led to a lot of um, dissent in the community. And that legal team was led by Luther Rosser, Reuben Arnold, and Herbert Haas. Uh, in addition to the hundreds of spectators inside the courtroom, those pictures are also on our social media, a large crowd gathered outside to watch the trial through the windows. We're talking thousands of people. Would later cite the crowds as factors of intimidation on the witnesses and the jury. Like, you would have to come and go, and so everybody heard what you said or heard what you did, and so literally, like, people could get attacked and so this scared a lot of people keep in mind most of the witnesses that were called were 10 to 14 year old girls they were children like babies who had been coached on what to say the public opinion and audience reaction clearly paid into the jury's perception of what was happening and what they already had heard today the jury more than likely but in all of georgia it was honestly probably very hard to pull an unbiased jury members since there were white people and jewish people all over uh at the time oh there were white people and they were the only ones that were serving on the juries mostly Yeah. yeah and jewish people were also not considered white at the time by southerners so you know they weren't going to pull anybody that was like a registered Jewish person registered to a synagogue. That You know, none of yeah. that was going to happen. No. So both legal teams in planning their trial strategy considered the implications of trying a white man based on the testimony of a black man in front of early 1900s Georgia jury. 
know, Jeffrey Melnick, author of Black Jewish Relations on Trial, Leo Frank and Jim Connolly in the New South, wrote that the defense tried to picture Connolly as a new kind of African-American and archaic. Uh, and dangerous while dorsey however painted conley as a new familiar type um forgive me for this term an old negro like a minstrel or plantation worker jesus yep, yep. one of the good ones is in fact words that are used by dorsey it makes me feel so reading a lot of this made me feel so gross yeah, but I it's important imagine. that we feel gross because it is important part of our history yeah Dorsey's strategy played on prejudices that white 1900s Georgia observers uh, would see that a black man could not be intelligent enough to make up a complicated story. And that the prosecution argued that Connolly's statements explaining the immediate aftermath of the murder was true. Frank was the murderer and that Frank had dictated the murder notes in an effort to pin the crime on Newt Lee, the night watchman. The prosecution presented witnesses who testified to bloodstains and strands of hair found in the lathe to support their theory that the murder occurred on the, the factory's second floor in the machine room near Frank's office. The defense denied that the murder occurred on the second floor. Both sides uh, contested the significance of physical evidence that suggested the place of the murder. Material found on Fagan's neck was shown to be present throughout the entire factory and that the place where it was stored was in the basement the elevator which was Connolly's story while the defense suggested that the drag marks on the floor indicated Connolly carried the body down the ladder and then dragged it across the floor mm -hmm. but of course there conveniently was not a ton of photos of those who the police didn't take them now, the defense argued that Connolly was the murderer and that Newt Lee helped Connolly write the two murder notes poor Newt. the defense <laughs> I poor Newt poor Newt this Newt's man like, he was an older man can I just clock in yeah. and clock the yeah. fuck out and go home please yeah. The defense brought many witnesses to support Leo's account of his movements, which indicated that he did not have enough time to commit the crime. Like they were literally trying to use proven records <laughs> and, you know, to support their theory that Connolly murdered Fagan in a robbery focused on Fagan's missing purse. Connolly claimed in court that he saw Frank place the purse in his office safe, although he denied having seen the purse before the trial. He only brought it up after it was brought up in court. Another witness testified that on Monday after the murder, the safe was open and there was no purse in it uh, because they were present when the, uh, the first time the safe was open the next morning. The significance of Fagan's torn pay umbrella was disputed on both sides. Connolly was cross-examined by the defense for 16 and a half hours over three days where he showboated and told mm. these grand stories and people like it was like it was like a revival. It was said in many ways. It was like a vaudeville mm. show. It was all these things. The defense then moved to have Connolly's entire testimony concerning the alleged rendezvous stricken from the record. He then said that he helped Leo bring young black men there before that he, that it was something that happened all the time. And he always helped Mr. Frank. So judge Rowe noted, noted that an early objection might have been upheld, but since the jury could not forget what it had heard, he allowed the evidence to stand. This man is a fucking piece of work. So he's very uh, confident. He's very yep, the, confident, very yep, narcissistic. Yep, yep, yep. So the prosecution supported uh, Leo's alleged ex, uh, expectation of a visit from Fagan, produced Helen Ferguson, a factory worker who first informed Fagan's parents of her death. 
Ferguson testified that she had tried to get Fagan's pay on Friday from Frank, uh, but was told that Fagan would have to come in person, say, assuming that Leo had already picked her out and would premeditated. But both the persons at the pay window and the woman behind Ferguson in line uh, distributed this uh, disputed this version of events, saying that no, she never came to ask this uh, because of her connection to the Fagan family. They would have let her. They would have let her take the pay stub, all of these things, because Mary was a minor. And so all of these things, the defense called a number of factory girls who testified that they had never seen Frank flirting with or ever touching the girls and they considered him of good character. In the prosecution's rebuttal, a steady parade of former factory workers, of course, former who had been fired by Frank mm -hmm. uh, said, uh, do you know Mr. Frank's character to be lascivious? And the answer was always usually very bad. So it keeps coming back to a timeline that was set up based on stomach contents that Mary had, uh, okay. that she died somewhere between 12 and 1215. And the prosecution brought in a young working named Montine Stover, who was in the musical, saying that she came to get her pay at 1205 uh, and was in the office between 1205 and 1210 and no one was around. Okay. And then they theorized that he was in the metals room across the hall, murdering Mary at that time. I'm sorry. Murder is not going to be quiet. No. Especially if it's a young girl, like other testimony indicated just because they said that Mary is lively and she's bright and she was sunny and a chatterbox. Like also like it's fight or flight. You're going to scream. I know like any time that I felt in danger, I screen. I've been as loud as possible. So like, or I mean there, I mean there are, the, it is possible that someone would like completely freeze up, but like, I, I, I would have to hear. Yeah, I was something. gonna say you're gonna hear something if she like, like if you're for how brutally away, she was murdered. Yeah. Like, you would have heard her head. You would have. Heard, I'm sorry, folks. Yeah, you would have heard her head bashing into the lathe. Yeah, if it was enough to take, like scalp fragments and hair and blood. Yeah. Like, and you would have so, heard would some have heard kind something. of like some kind of moan, some kind of groan, like yeah, like a physical reaction, a body collapsing to the floor. Yeah, like again, Leo's also a small man; he wasn't in particularly good health, so like he would have been winded, like something. Yeah. You would have heard something. Um, also, these are wood-soled shoes, probably for Leo. So like, there would have been wood on wood. You would have heard something. Oh, like, absolutely. The sole it's not of the like shoe would have been made out of wood. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so, but all the other testimonies, including by a trolley driver, indicated that Fagan was on the trolley and exited between 1207 and 1210. Yeah. And from her stop, it would take about four minutes to walk, suggesting that Stover arrived first, making her testimony and its implications irrelevant because that was also the 18 minutes that that was in the 18 minutes that Leo was not accounted for uh -huh. so he could have gone to the bathroom something so frank could not god forbid maybe the man needed to take a shit i know <laughs> i know but heaven forbid uh, yeah. so frank could not be killing fagan because of the time he had was so limited and lemmy quinn foreman of the metal room testified that he spoke briefly with leo in his office at 12 20 Leo had not mentioned Quinn when the police first interviewed him about his whereabouts at noontime on April 26th. So, um, Frank had, so, yeah, hold, yeah. so hold up. So hold up. They're saying that between 12 and like 1215 Mary's murdered. Yep. And that, and then he just like had five minutes to, 
to like clean himself up before meeting yep. with this guy. Also, you would have heard the elevator. Yeah. If if he did it via the elevator, or really if he'd done it via the 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 ladder, you would have really heard that. Yeah. Like, uh, construction was not great. These factories burned down all the time. So like, yeah. yeah. And it was a foreman. So like, coroner's inquest that Quinn arrived less than ten minutes after Fagan had left his office, and during the murder trial, said Quinn arrived hardly five minutes after Fagan left. Um, so you know, it's one of those things that like she clearly left was leaving the premises. And so that's why they're also saying that Connolly probably was walking into the lobby, saw her while well, had followed somebody else in, then saw Mary and figured she was easier to steal from. And several experts, experts called for the defense. It would have taken at least 30 minutes to murder Fagan, take the body to the basement and return to the office, write and write the murder notes. So by defense's calculation, Frank's time was fully accounted for between 1130 and 130, except for 18 minutes between 1202 and 1220. During the trial, the prosecution alleged bribery and witness tampering attempts by Frank's legal team. Meanwhile, the defense requested a, um, mistrial because it believed that the jurors had been intimidated by the people inside and outside the courtroom, but this motion was denied. Mm. <sighs> so on August 25th, 1913, after less than four hours of deliberation, the jury reached a unanimous guilty verdict oh convicting God. Leo Frank of murder. Four hours, less than four, four hours. Hours. Yep. On August 26th, the day after the guilty verdict was reached by the jury, Judge Rome brought the counsel into private chambers and sentenced Leo Frank to death by hanging with the date set for October 10th. The defense team issued a public protest, alleging that public opinion unconsciously influenced the jury to prejudice against Frank. This argument was carried forward throughout every single appeals process. Leo's team would continue to appeal at the state and federal levels, levels but each time denied. Like, it literally went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court court and seven of the nine agreed with what judge Roan had decided. That's just so and upsetting. Let, let me tell you what one of the justices of our U S Supreme court said. I very seriously doubt if the petitioner has had due process of law because of the trial taking place in the presence of a hostile demonstration in seemingly dangerous crowd thought by the presiding judge to be ready for violence unless a verdict of guilty was rendered. Mm. So they literally said that it was by all parties assumed that Leo had to be guilty so that these people watching did not burn the place down yeah. because then everybody would have been killed, which is a bullshit excuse. Peels and everything. We are in 1915. And an application to commute uh, Frank's death sentence was submitted to a three-person prison commission in Georgia. It was rejected on June 9th by a vote of two to one. The dissenter indicated that he felt it was wrong to execute a man on the testimony of an accomplice when the circumstances of the crime tend to fix the guilt upon the accomplice. So then because it was denied it can then go to the governor so the application went to governor john slayton who is a pretty big character in second act of the musical mm. uh he had been elected in 1912 and his term would end four days after frank's scheduled execution so that would be the last thing tied to his governorship 
Slayton opened a hearing on June 12th, and in addition to receiving presentations from both sides with new arguments and new evidence, Slayton visited the crime scenes, reviewed over 10,000 photos of documents. This included how the body was found, they reenacted how it would have been drugged down, and what was said was... So something I will say about Slatton, because this was when you also had to have been a judge, you had to have been all these things before you could be governor. And so he included various letters, including one written by George Roan shortly before he died, asking Slayton to correct his mistake. Judge Roan, at the end of the day, wrong. Correct his mistake. <laughs> Thousand death threats in two months for investigating the trial again. During the hearing, for former Governor Joseph Brown warned Slayton, in all frankness, if your excellency wishes to invoke lynch law in Georgia and destroy trial by jury, the way to do it is by retrying this case and reversing all the courts. So his predecessor, who is known to be a good old boy, said, the only way that you can make sure that Georgia stays Georgia that to quote old red hills home that the southland stays free is to not do this so at the end slatten produced a 29 page report in the first part he criticized outsiders who were unfamiliar with the evidence especially the press of the north he defended the trial's court's decision which he felt was sufficient he summarized points of the state's case against frank that any reasonable person would accept and said, uh, said of Connolly that it is hard to conceive that any man's power of fabrication of minute details could reach that which Connolly showed unless it was the truth. After having made these points, Slatton's narrative changed course and asked the rhetorical question, did Jim Connolly speak the truth? wrote Slayton based his opinions primarily upon the inconsistencies he had discovered in the narrative of Jen Connolly. So uh, Jen Connolly would go on to say that um, he at one point took a shit in the um, elevator shaft because that's what he did often. Cool, cool. Because cool, cool. he as a black person was not allowed into the same bathrooms as everyone else. And that was the closest thing for him. Hey, listen, shit where you got it. If you can't. Uh, the two factors stood out for Slatton, the transporting of the body to the basement and the murder notes. So Connolly said that he took a shit in the, the elevator shaft. There was human excrement in the elevator shaft. There are pictures of it from the police investigation. And guess what? It's not smashed. It's not flat. It is fully and intact. And like little, a little pile of, of horse poopy. Um, it sounds crazy, but I've seen the pictures. And so yeah, and well, and then so the def the prosecution just said, oh, well, the elevator doesn't touch the ground. It comes to a stop, an elevated stop. So like it's got a stopper so that it doesn't smash into the ground. Right. And so uh, literally Slatten uh, investigates and they confirm that that elevator touches the ground when it goes to the bottom. So there's no way. And then they went clearly look at Leo Frank. He's so tiny. He's frail. And he wasn't that much taller than Mary Fagan. So like, right. You really expect. And then all these things. So like, so then Jim would have carried the body to all these things. And so, um, on Monday, June 21st, 1915, Slatton released the order to commute Leo Frank's murder conviction, but it was commuted to a life's imprisonment. Now, this was done 
for Leo's safety. Because unless he and Lucille were going to immediately leave Georgia the moment he was taken from prison, but there would have been people waiting for him outside the prison. Like it was one of those things that like, I don't agree with it, but I understand. And so because of this reason, his legal rationale was sufficient new evidence was not available from the original trial to justify Frank's actions. The commutation made headline news and Atlanta mayor, Jimmy Woodard remarked that the larger part of the population believes Frank is guilty and that the commutation was a mistake in response. Slatton invited the press to his home that afternoon telling them, All I ask is that the people of Georgia read my statement and consider calmly the reason I've given the commuting of Leo Frank feeling as I do about the case. I would be a murderer. If I allowed that man to hang, I would rather be plowing in a field than to feel the rest of my life that I had a man's blood on my hands. He also told reporters that he was certain Jim Conley was the actual murderer. Real punches pilot on our hands. (laughs) Yep. Slatton privately told friends that he would have issued a full pardon if he did not believe that Frank and his attorney team would soon prove that he was innocent on his own. Fuck you, man. Mm. Fuck you. Like, again, just because you're the most, like, open-minded conservative still makes you a piece of the fucking system, my dude. Mm. Like, fuck off. Now, we've seen how polarized... Loud conservative, uh, polarized and loud, the conservative South can be about anything. Over the last two years, over the last four years, we've fucking seen it. So yeah. this is no exception. This is millennia old at this point. So for Frank's protection, he was taken to Millie, Milledgeville State Penitentiary in the middle of a night before the commutation was announced. Mm-hmm. So before people even knew. And the, the prison he was actually moved to was for people who were not on death row, but were life in prison, but they lived in like, it was like a campground in like a farming camp versus a traditional prison. Okay. Um, so he was allowed to have his wife there for visits and like they could have a picnic and Leo had a, you know, they were able to develop a good relationship with the guards that were there. Um, the penitentiary, uh, penitentiary was strongly garrisoned and newly bristling with arms and separated from Marietta by over 150 miles of mostly unpaved road. So it would have taken a long, long time and difficult time to get there. However, on July 7th, the New York Times reported that fellow inmate William Crean tried to kill Leo by slashing his throat with a seven inch butcher knife, severing his jugular vein. The attacker told the authorities that he wanted to keep the other inmates safe from the mob violence that he knew was coming because Frank's presence would be a disgrace to the prison and he was sure it would get everyone killed. Yeah, like there, like I, there's a moment where I go, I get it, my dude, but then I also go, fuck you. <laughs> you, you agreed that you, you have no idea and you're still saying that, Mary, that Leo killed this girl. But also it's like, I mean, I do understand that like, well, but it's not right in yeah. any way, shape, or form. Yeah. No. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, who are the people in prison that are not going to make it? It's the people that, like, do stuff to kids. And... Yeah. And so... But it's just like, I guess, were they getting papers? Like, were they hearing about this yeah. whole thing? It like, was everywhere. Yeah, they were getting papers. Everybody was talking about it. I mean, a lot of those people, if you think about it, are poor people. They're from poor communities. They probably There was likely someone related to Mary Fagan or that knew the mm-hmm. Fagan family was mm-hmm. in that prison. Probably, yeah. 
And so I wish I, I wish I could say that Leo would go on to prove his innocence further. And even though he and his wife were working to prove that Leo wouldn't make it to see his prison time fully commuted. This moment in the actions of the group are traced back to a statement made by publisher Tom Watson, June 21st of 1915. He wrote in the Jeffersonian and Watson's magazine, which he both ran, this country has nothing to fear from its rural communities. Lynch law is a good sign. It shows that a sense of justice lives among the people. A group of prominent men organized themselves into what was called the Vigilance uh, Committee and openly planned to kidnap Frank from prison. They consisted of 28 men with various skills. An electrician was brought on to cut the prison wires. Car mechanics were there to keep the cars running. There was a locksmith, a telephone man, a medic, a hangman, and a lay preacher. I love, I love how, okay, I gotta, I gotta get this off my fucking chest. I love how, because not only has this happened in Frank's case, but I mean, it, it happened so much in like the Scottsboro boys and, um, case and, it's like this idea of like protecting um, female purity. And it's just mm-hmm. like, you don't give a fuck about women. Mm-hmm. Because if you did, you would be doing everything you could to to bring justice to the victim. And not just like, like the man is in jail. Get the fuck over it. Like, yep. like w- let it be done. Like, why do you need to just like push like fucking push your heels into the ground. Like, what is the point of that? Like, aren't you embarrassed? Aren't you embarrassed? Aren't your, aren't your descendants embarrassed by you? Because they fucking should be. They thought they were upholding the legacy of the South to not be tread upon. But sorry, babies, we tread upon you. We still are treading on you. Go fuck yourselves. Well, guess like, what? Just, guess it, what shouldn't have been tread upon? The evidence at the crime scene. Guess what I shouldn't agree. have been doing that? Because maybe if we gave a fucking fuck about victims and actual justice, real change would happen. But yep. like, it's just, it's just, it's, it's dripping with pride. It's dripping with with um misogyny it's dripping with toxic masculinity and also also institutional like setting up knowing that the institutions that were set up to protect us were set up to protect wealthy white people and no one else and like like i said there were those systems are working just as they were designed yep yep so on august 16th the eight cars of the lynch mob left marietta separately uh for milledgeville They arrived at the prison at 10 p.m. The electrician cut the telephone wires. Members of the group drained the gas from the prison automobiles, handcuffed the warden, seized Frank, and drove away. Now, something that was left off of a lot, there was a double-locked steel door with double glass that they had to break down and get open, and they did. Um, I'll get to it in a bit. Um... Like, were they, like, on ketamine? Like, what the fuck? I don't know. The good old boys. Moonshine. I don't know. So the 175-mile trip took about seven hours at the top speed of 18 miles per hour throughout small towns and back roads. Lookouts in every town telephoned ahead to the next town as soon as they saw the line of cars passing by so that no one stopped them and no one got in their way. Gee, oh my God. A site called Frey's Gen, two miles east of Marietta, had been prepared, complete with a rope with a noose tied, a table, 
supplied by former Sheriff William Frey. <laughs> Along with being assistant director, I played the old soldier in an art production of Parade. The old soldier led the lynch mob. And I was the one that uh, put the noose on Leo's neck. And I was the one that demanded uh, and pulled the rope. That's a hard role to play. Yeah. 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 So I, I always joke that I never put as much work into a full play as I did into four and a half pages of, of dialogue. Mm. Um, and so when we went to the exhibit at the Jewish Heritage Museum, it started with Leo's life and went through and you could just see the pages and pages and pages of word for word of Jim Connolly's things. You saw pictures of Mary Fagan. They had her communion clothes. They had her baptismal dress wow. hanging in a case on the wall. Um, I, I remember our, our Mary and our Jim sitting, holding each other and holding each other's hands as they were reading everything and just sitting there. Shout out to Maurice and Annalise. Uh, Annalise has been a swing on the rent farewell tour this past year and she's a fucking rock star and they both put in incredible work to the show and just seeing kind of what all of us that went kind of what we were experiencing because even in our research that we've done and even in the dramaturgy and everything it, we weren't prepared for it well yeah it's, it's like i mean it's gotta be really really hard to play the character jim too like yeah you yeah. you i mean i've only played mm -hmm. like a real villain once and it's it's really difficult to like separate mm -hmm. yourself from that role to be mm -hmm. like no, I am my own human and I am just playing mm -hmm. something to to the um, authenticity that I can because mm -hmm. it's part of it's it's an integral part of the story to make sure that the good parts are seen. Yep. And it's like, oh, like it's like that I don't think I could take this show on. Like it's, it's heavy. It's so heavy. And so um the main part of the room where you go into it is all the exhibit stuff. It included, like, I believe the New York Times had done a photo-for-photo photo recreation of the thing, including, like, a fake Mary, all these things. There was a f model of the factory. And so then you go through this door, this opening, and you could see there was stuff playing on the other end. And it's the wall that signifies Leo going to prison and then what happened after. Mm. Um, so M, I walk through that door frame, and it's darker in the next room, and there's a giant fake tree. Um, and next to the door frame is the actual door from the prison that they had knocked down to get the, Leo out. The one that's like the two. The, the actual, the, the, the steel door with the two layers of glass is yeah. hanging in the, and this is Ooh. the way they do the exhibit is they just expect you not to touch things, but it's literally your centimeters from it. Yeah. And so, no one was around and I, I had I to, to touch it. I, to I had, I had, I had to touch it. I, I had to touch it. Yeah. When I tell you that, that I, you know, I'm very uwu anyway, but the, the things I felt that like it, it was so crashing and heavy to me. Mm. And it was one of the most sobering moments of my life because the next thing they had was a giant screen playing a video of Leo swinging in the tree that was taken that oh, morning no. and of the crowds of people arriving. And it was, <laughs> I'm going to apologize in advance because mm. I'm going to have a little difficulty getting through this next part of the story because it still sits really heavy with me. And so we're at a point in 
our history where there are photos, there is video evidence. It's not much video, but God, and it moves fast, but it is, it's haunting. I have video of it. I watched it preparing for this and it was a really bad idea. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's so fucked. Um, and so just to show everyone how planned this was, Within 90 minutes of that table being kicked out from under Leo, there were a thousand people at the site taking photos and celebrating, having picnics with barbecue, like literal barbecue. Photos were taken and turned into postcards that were sold up and down rural highways in Georgia and North Carolina and Florida. Um, People cut pieces of his shirt as souvenirs. They took his clothing and had it mounted in boxes. Now, the photos were never published because the lynch mob is clearly seen in the photos. Yeah, they took such fucking, fucking pride. And clearly these photos, most of them didn't surface until they... M, can I tell you when they were last taken out of these side, these side road gas stations and lodges? All right, let me guess. I'm going to say like in the seventies. So it's the 1950s, but they were still being found. That's that's still not very long ago. For some reason, these videos and these photos, the ones that went nationwide were ones of the crowds. Sometimes you would get Leo's legs hanging in the, in Mm. the photo. Um, Don't Google it, everyone, because you will see it. I'm not posting it in our social media for that reason, because it is rough. It is terrifying. It's gutting. Um, Hearing about it is isn't is quite enough. And a lot of them didn't surface to the public for about fifty years. They were they were passed down as souvenirs from family member to family member. They were so proud of what they did. When the body was finally taken down, his face got kicked in, his body got trampled, people took shots with it. Like it was disgusting. And when it was finally allowed to be transported to a funeral home where a mortician could do the mortician things to the body. The, the building was surrounded by people. They were threatening to burn it down. They were threatening to throw, they were throwing bricks through the window. So they had no choice, but to literally open it up and let people parade past the body and spit on it and comment and take other pieces of his clothing. It's, it's, it's almost like, and I, I mean no offense and I, I, it's, it's almost Christ-like, like how it's like, like how at least like this, the, at least the Bible depicts like the, the mobs and like the, the indecency of like the human form and like what was done to just a singular man. And it is like, I just don't, I don't under, I I, I will never be able to understand that type of cruelty, especially from people who like are just wrapped up in mob mentality. Yep. So his body was eventually allowed to be moved back to New York where he was laid to rest with his family. It is notated everywhere that Lucille did not elect to be buried with him or his family. She was cremated and laid to rest with her family instead. Interesting. But Leo was laid to rest on August 20th of 1915 with his family. Now I'm going to say this next part quietly and slowly because I want it to sink in. That the ringleaders 
were well-known locally, but were not publicly named until June of 2000. When a local librarian posted a list on the web based on information compiled by Mary Fagan's grand great-niece, Mary Fagan Keene, born 1953. Now I have a story that I'm going to wrap up with that also deals with Mary Fagan Keene. The list included Joseph Mackey Brown, former governor of Georgia, who told Slatton not to do it. Eugene Herbert Clay, former mayor of Marietta and later president of Georgia Senate. E.P. Dobbs, mayor of Marietta at the time. Moultrie McKinney Sessions, lawyer and banker, part of the Marietta delegation of at the governor's salon clemency hearing. Several current and former Cobb County sheriffs and other individuals of various professions, all community leaders. Mm. But unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. His wonderful wife, Lucille, would never remarry, but also never stop speaking about the injustices that greeted her husband in his death and did amazing things in her own life. I'm working on a bonus episode that is just her story that gets yeah. buried behind Leo's and she was a brilliant woman that I'm, it's just going to be a narrative episode. I'm going to post for everybody in the coming months. It's going to take me a little while to put together. This story would be discussed for decades. Um, Parade, you know, I didn't really look into much media, but there are miniseries. There are movies about this. There were, sh there, there were movies about this within five years of it happening. It, inv it, it, it mm. there were songs about Jim Connolly. There were like, it was, it wouldn't be until 1982 that the first attempt at a posthumous pardon was made for Leo. In 1982, Alonzo Mann, who had been Frank's office boy at the time of Fagan's murder, told this Tennessean that on the day of the murder, he witnessed Jim Connolly alone shortly after noon carrying Mary Fagan's body through the <gasps> lobby towards the ladder descending into the basement. He also said that Connolly looked him in the eye and threatened to kill him and his family. Oh my God. So it was only on his deathbed that he was so overcome with guilt that he wanted to come forward. But man's oh. testimony was said to be not sufficient enough to settle the issue. Uh, wh what yes. else is going to fucking take? But it was the basis of an attempt by Charles Wittenstein, Southern Council of the Anti-Defamation League, and Dale Schwartz, an Atlanta lawyer, to obtain a posthumous pardon for Frank from the Georgia Senate Board of Pardons and Paroles. The board also reviewed the files from Slatton's commutation decision, uh, and it denied the pardon in 1983, hindered it in its investigation by the lack of availability of records. Because, M, would you believe anything that was about police negligence and things that they didn't do all got lost. Oh, my God. It had to happen. We it just, just, we it just, all burned it up. Just, it just fell through my fingers. It all just burned up. I don't know. We all had wood buildings. It all just burned down. I, I don't just, know. Yeah, I was just making some s'mores. <laughs> just leave some things on fire. Sorry. You know, during the Depression, we had to burn a lot of things because we were so poor. I was so cold. So I needed to make a fire. I was so Think cold. Think about the office. <laughs> I just need... Hey, hey, look. I was just so cold. Dude, I need to make a fire. And then there was lots of papers around me, so I said, I'll make a fire out of this. Coming soon, it, coming soon is our, our, our drunk orphans reading of Oliver. <laughs> Baby cups. 
<laughs> so after exhaustive review and hours of deliberation, it was an impossible to decide conclusively if Leo was guilty or innocent for the board to grant a pardon in, of innocence to be shown conclusively. So Frank's supporters submitted a second application for a pardon, asking the state only to recognize its culpability over his death. Yeah. The board granted the pardon without question in 1986. In response to the pardon, an editor by uh, an editorial by Fred Grimm in the Miami Herald said, "A solve for one of the South's most hateful, festering memories has finally applied." And in 2008, a historical marker was placed where Frank was hung. And in 2018, the Jewish American Society for Historical Preservation built Georgia's first anti-lynching memorial in the name of Leo Frank and the other 570 Georgians lynched from 1880 to 1946. I need to end this. Yeah. How you doing? How's your heart? I'm good. I'm good. I need to end this with a... a story about the presentation of the George Jewish Heritage Museum. Uh, the book writer expanded upon his understanding of the story and gave us this story. This is Alfred Yuri. He went to visit a college in Marietta where parade was being presented for the very first time, literally a mile and a half from where Leo Frank hung oh. in the tree. It was being presented in Marietta and was the first Georgia production since the national tour launched in 2000 because the state and the organizations protecting the legacy of Mary Fagan had not allowed it. Now in protest, all the living members of Mary Fagan's family were there. And Mary Fagan Keene, who was responsible for putting everything together said, you know, Mr. Yuri, in our heart of hearts, we know that Mr. Frank murdered our aunt. And we will live with that until the end of our family's lives. And that M is the unfortunately tragic murders of Leo Frank and Mary Fagan. So Mary Fagan's family thinks he did it. To this day. They 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 also actively work. They um they're uh in twenty thirteen uh, for the centennial of the um, murder of Mary, there was lots of anti-Leo Frank, anti-Jewish, and anti-Semitic websites put together. They are still live. Do not look for them. Yeah, it's bad. Don't, don't um, I'm on a list now because I went and looked for them uh, against my better judgment. Um, oh, yeah, they think it. They still work on it. Most people in Georgia still... There's a reason why... Uh, oh, also the year after or the months after um, uh, Leo was killed, mm-hmm. 85% of the Jewish community of the state of Georgia left. Yeah, get out of there. Literally, I think they said 2,800 of the 4,500 Jewish people over 18 living in uh, Georgia at that time all left. And Slatton and his wife left the day after they commuted the sentence and left Georgia forever. Mm. Yeah. So before we wrap up, my sources for today's episodes are the archive from the Jewish Heritage Museum, along with my own photos and videos from the exhibit and the concert, the Leo Frank wiki, the parade wiki, parade vaults, uh, Playbills vaults article on the original run of parade, the Leo Frank case archives, which I encourage everyone to look at. They are 
expansive, and so well-informed. Mm. Episode 210 of My Favorite Murder, a Ranker article, several New York Times articles, The the Dead Will Rise by Steve Oney, The Leo Frank Case Reconsider from the Journal of American History by Nancy McLean, and Black Jewish Relations on Trial, Leo Frank and Jim Connolly in the New South by Jeffrey Paul Melnick. Hoo-wee! We did it. You that fucking one is, did it. We've had to keep pushing back this this recording a little bit, and every time I've like done the research, and I just it's been so hard to write the episode, and then yeah. keep going back, and it's just it's it's so hard because it's one of those moments like the upstairs lounge um, fire in the seventies in New Orleans. Mm. I mean, there's just so there's just so many moments. Uh, Emmett Till, mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they're just these moments where we still have not repented for being a society that allowed it to happen because while we weren't the woman that lied about it, who is still walking free, mind you in the Emmett Till case, she's still alive and still walking free. Mm. Um, We, as a, we, as a culture, a community, a people have not atoned for the sins of our ancestors. And it is our job to atone for the sins of our ancestors. Em, thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. Oh my I appreciate gosh. it. Thank you for all this beautiful research and for um, just bringing this story to light in, in your way. And like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can hear it, but like, and I don't mean to like, I, I hope this doesn't like degrade anything that we've done, but there were really specific moments that like you were really speaking to um to his experience and like our audio was getting strange and like uh-huh. I was like, Oh, he's here with us. Like we're telling his story and he's here with us right now. Like like I feel that very greatly and like I, you know, it's just it, uh, Oh, I'm hearing it right now. That's that's <laughs> Um, but it's, it's extremely tragic and, and I, I'm honestly speechless. Like I'm, I'm like, speechless is, is truly what I'm embodying right now. And, and you're right. Like these are like, it's hard for us to tell this story because it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, I don't know if I fucking pray I'm not related to anybody that was involved in this, but it's like our ancestors. I mean, I'm sure my ancestors did some awful shit because I'm a white woman like in America. So who fuck knows? Um, but like that, this is our job. This is our job to to sit with the discomfort because our discomfort is nothing compared to what marginalized people have um, been forced to experience and go through. And, um, I commend you on the amount of research that you did and how deep you went. And I think our listeners are, um, going to be better for it. I know I'm better for it knowing the story now. And, um, you know, it's, it kind of makes sense why a musical like this wouldn't last long. Cause I don't think people could probably sit and handle it. I will say next year is the 110 year anniversary. Mm. Um, I'm hoping that because the end of the woods that just ran at city center, by the time this comes out, will have run or will be running at, uh, on Broadway for six weeks. I feel like it's going to get extended. I feel like it's going to turn into a Chicago or a cabaret. Um, but 
I'm hoping that this production of Parade, if done correctly, will move to Broadway. Mm. I'm also encouraging everyone now as you're planning your 2023-2024 theater seasons, be it community theater, collegiate theater, uh, professional regional theater, uh, not-for-profit regional theater, consider adding Parade to your season. It is timely. The score is incredible and beautiful. And please cast it authentically. And please cast it authentically. It takes a lot of the same boxes, a lot of the shows that your audience is already asking for, Les Mis, Ragtime, Mm -hmm. the large epic shows, but it has a modern appeal as well. Uh, So I really encourage you all to put it in your season. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Exit Stage Death is brought to you by Dreamer Productions. This episode was audio engineered and edited by Maddie Limerick. And our theme is Antisocial Dance Party by Brett Eagleston from the Let's Rewatch podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Stage Death Podcast. On Twitter at Stage Death Pod. And send us your favorite chilling theater stories at Stage Death Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Patreon.com at Dreamer Productions, where your donation of $2 a month keeps quality content coming your way on your favorite podcatcher app. Join us for more chilling true stories on the next episode of Exit Stage Death.